Lord, we're grateful that we get to be here, that uh, we have your word. Oh, he's in there. Okay. We're grateful, Lord, for uh, the many gifts that you've given us. And we enter this time of year, Christmas, where we give each other gifts. And uh, I pray, Lord, that those would be reminders to each of us of the great gift that you gave us in the person of Christ. That each time we give something, each time we receive something, that we would remember that great and best gift. Lord, as we are here looking at your word this morning, we get to talk about Emmanuel. We get to talk about God with us. We get to talk about the incarnation, the Son of God taking on flesh. We get to talk about glory to you and peace with us. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us to focus in our minds on what we're talking about. I pray that the distractions of what uh, was before and what will come after or what's going on in our lives, that we would be able to set them aside, that we would be able to focus in on your word, that we would be able to listen to what you have to say to us, that we would be responsive. I pray that your Holy Spirit would have his way with us, that we would be listening, that we would be obedient. Lord, it really is an exciting, exciting time of year, not just because of presence, but because of Christ, because of salvation that's offered in him. And so as we come here, Lord, I pray that this would be our offering of worship. And I pray that we would be drawn into greater worship um, because of this time. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, for several weeks now, we actually, since uh, mid-October, we've been looking at various aspects of theology. We've been talking about uh, in this series called The Excellencies, Beauty, and Perfections of God. And uh, it's been exciting for me. It's been encouraging for me. It's been en- enriching for my own uh, spiritual life, for my own understanding, for my own uh, even prayer life. And, uh, and, and I, I trust that it has been for you as well. It's our desire in this whole series that we understand better what the Bible has to say about who God is and what he's done on our behalf, better understand our interaction with him and his work for us, et cetera. And so, uh, of course, those are lofty goals, and and I hope that that's been the case for you. Sometimes it can be challenging to to study theology if we're not used to it because it, it can seem a little esoteric. It can seem a little out there and not really connected with my life, but what I've seen personally through this study is that, in fact, it is connected with my life, that my theology determines the way I see all manner of things, whether I find hope in a situation where uh, a friend is in a, in a, a terrible, dire straits or, or someone is injured and, or we lose a family member or something. How, how do we get through that? Well, our theology determines how we get through that. And so uh, I, I trust that as we grow deeper in our theology that we will be grounded more in our faith and that we would be encouraged, that we would be encouraging other people in uh, in their own faith. And so I hope this has been uh, encouraging for you. I, I was thinking about uh, John chapter 4 where uh, Jesus talking to the woman at the well and he says, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And so it's been our, our, our desire to grow in our understanding of what is the truth that we can better worship him in truth. And so as Christians, we have the Bible. We, uh, we, get to, we get to have this. Not just do I myself get to own one, but we have possession of God's word. And so that's a very great privilege. It's also a great responsibility for us to look into it 
and see what's there and then obey what we find there. And so that's uh, um, uh, that's what I hope we get out of this of this whole time. As we've been looking at God, we've been discussing various aspects of theology. We've talked about a lot of uh, different areas that we learn about God, about his interaction with us, about his person. We learned that he's the great three in one. We talked about the fact that he exists eternally as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, and each person is fully God, and there is only one God. And so if you've wrapped your mind around what all that means, I want to talk to you later so you can explain it to me, and we'll write a book together and solve a problem that is very difficult. It's, it's a complex truth about God, and yet we see it affirmed in Scripture again and again. God is three in one. We also looked at the fact that God is self-existent. He exists in himself. His own existence isn't dependent upon something outside of him. He exists by virtue of the fact that he exists, by virtue of who he is. He is self-existent. He is the I am. When nothing else existed, God existed. And tied up in that, of course, is God's eternity, the fact that he has always existed and will always exist. He's also self-determining. He is his own standard. He's his own standard. He's not, uh, he's not held to some standard outside of himself that he has to own up to. He is the standard by virtue of who he is. That's what it means that God is self-determining. He does whatever he pleases because it stems from who he is. We looked at the fact that God is holy. He is completely set apart from sin and any of sin's corruption. He is also at the same time set apart for the pursuit of his own glory. God is holy. He is separate. God is sovereign. He upholds the created order and he works all things within the created order to the counsel of his will or to his own purposes. God is sovereign. We also looked at the fact that God is good. He is the final standard of good. He himself is the final standard of good. And all that he is and all that he does is worthy of approval. God is good. We looked at the fact that God is faithful. He has made promises to us and he keeps those promises. He obligates himself to fallen humanity by what he says he's going to do. And then he carries it out and does it. God is faithful. So all of these truths about God, and that's kind of a super quick overview of what we've been doing since mid-October. All of these truths about God, they're very powerful. They're very high and they're very mighty. They're all true, but they really don't become good news for us unless Christmas happens. They're truth about God, but they don't really get to the good news for us aspect unless Christmas happens. By themselves, none of them cures our ailment, our separation from God. That's the result of sin. The Bible says all have sinned. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. And that's where we find ourselves. And so incredible truths about God don't come to a fine point until we get to Christmas time. And this is where Christmas comes in. So let's look together today at the doctrine for Christmas. Doctrine for Christmas. We're going to start with expectation. The expectation. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, we're going to read a good chunk of it there. The expectation of God with us. Matthew chapter 1, 
I'm going to read, uh, like I said, a good chunk here, 18 through the end of the chapter there. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. All right, so we know this story. We read this, we hear it every year, right, at Christmas time. I find it very interesting here. He quotes from Isaiah. This passage that he quotes here, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. That's a quotation from Isaiah chapter 7. And so, as good Bible students, when something from the Old Testament is quoted, what should you do? You should go to the Old Testament and read that context. So we're going to turn, even now, to uh, Isaiah chapter 7. Flip back to Isaiah chapter 7. There's a lot going on in Isaiah. We'll get to chapter 7. It's very interesting. Chapter 6 is very interesting also, of course, learning about holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And uh, that's a massive deal. But we get to chapter 7. We've got this situation going on with King Ahaz. King Ahaz is the king of Judah, the southern kingdom. If you remember, this is in the time, uh, the history of Israel, where they've, they've been divided into two kingdoms. And so there's a northern kingdom, which is called Israel, and the southern kingdom is called Judah. Okay, so we're going to be talking about Judah. Always think southern kingdom, that's Jerusalem. The northern kingdom is Israel. It's referred to as Samaria. It's got some other names, but that's the northern kingdom. So they're they're cousins. They used to be united, and then they split. And so now you've got this difference going on, okay? So King Ahaz, the king from the southern kingdom, from Judah, he hears this rumor. He hears that uh, that the king of Samaria, the king of Israel, has gotten together with the king of Syria, another northern country there, and they're going to join together and come and do battle against Judah. Now, Judah is small already, and you've got two kingdoms coming against Judah, so King Ahaz is not too excited about this. He's pretty scared about the situation, about what's going on, right? So the Lord sends Isaiah, along with his son, whose name I will not try to pronounce in front of you. Uh, he sends Isaiah with his son out to speak to Ahaz because he wants to tell him, to encourage him that, hey, these two kingdoms that are coming, don't worry about them. They're going to come to their end. They're going to be destroyed soon. So you'd think that would be a good cheering moment. All right, our enemies are going to be destroyed. That's a good thing, right? And so uh, God offers to prove to Ahaz uh, that he really will make this happen. And so he says... Uh, he, he says, ask for a sign. Ask for a sign for me that I'm really going to do this. That's what God says to Ahaz. Ask for a sign that I really will do this. And very strange. 
Ahaz refuses. He said, no, far be it for me to put the Lord to the test. I'm not going to do that. And so he refuses. And so the Lord gets angry with him. And uh, and uh, we see in verse uh, 14, after he's refused, he says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. This is Isaiah speaking on behalf of the Lord. He says, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. This is the sign that God tells Ahaz, he's going to give him, that he really will destroy these two kingdoms that have come against uh, Judah or that are, that are going to come against Judah. And so um, this boy, uh, Emmanuel, doesn't tell us exactly right, right here. It tells us in the New Testament, tells us a little bit later that Emmanuel is the Hebrew word that means God with us. God with us. And so Isaiah and Ahaz, in hearing that name, Emmanuel, were probably thinking, okay, this is a sign that, that God is going to be working for us. If I were to tell you, go and do that thing, God is with you, you would think, okay, God's going to bless me. So I'm going to go do this thing, right? You wouldn't think in your mind that God's going to come stand beside you and be with you as you do that thing, right? So they might have understood it that way. I, I don't know exactly what they understood, but that would have been the most natural way, the simplest way for them to understand what God with us means, that God is going to bless them. God is going to be with them. He's going to make this stuff work, all right? And we're going to see this develop. So kind of hold on to that tension right there. This prophesied boy, he's going to spell the end of these two kingdoms. Their, their force, their threat against the southern kingdom is going to be put to an end. And this, this child, Emmanuel, is going to be uh, uh, kind of the herald that that is going to happen. Unfortunately, the same child is also going to be the herald of the arrival of an even worse threat, Assyria. You see, the reason Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel were going to be done away with was because an even worse threat moved into town and is going to knock them off. And so now, oh, you don't have to worry about those two thugs anymore. Now you've got the real guy to worry about, okay? So it's, a, it's kind of a mixed blessing that goes, goes on there. But that, that's what this name Emmanuel is going to mean. God, God is going to, he's going to come and he's going to deliver you from this situation. God will be with you. And so think back to Matthew's situation. Matthew, in talking about the birth of Jesus, he looks back on this situation and he sees the prophecy of this child that's going to be born, Emmanuel, God with us, to deliver us. He sees that as being fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And so he thinks back to Isaiah chapter 14. All right, so there's this expectation that's being developed, starting, starting even with this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7, an expectation being developed amongst the Jews that God is going to be with them. He's going to be with them to deliver them. When we look further into the passage, we begin to see the expectation also, not just of uh, God with us, but the expectation of a divine Messiah. You see the beginnings of this expectation of a divine Messiah. So we're still back in, in Isaiah and uh, looking at, at chapter 7. Think through that story. That takes us into chapter 8, which kind of talks about this coming Assyrian uh, invasion. It's not going to be a good thing. All right, The Assyrian army was awful. They were... Uh, frightening and uh, they were conquerors and then you have you have in the end of chapter 8 there a discussion about apostasy and the way you should respond to these things and about trusting in the lord instead of trusting in either other nations or in uh, 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 soothsayers and and uh, 
uh, stuff like that. Should we, should we look to the, the mystical arts to try and find our way out of this, or should we trust in the Lord? Which brings us into chapter 9. Chapter 9. Let me, let me read for you verses 2 and then verse 6. So we're in Isaiah chapter 9, looking at verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Then look at verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So there's a son. Again, there's a discussion of this son that's going to come. And it moves beyond the description of what's given in 714 of this son who's going to be Emmanuel, God with us. It gets much more explicit. It talks about a greater redemption. It talks about a son who is not only going to be a herald of what's going to come, he's actually going to have the government on his shoulders. He's going to bring peace. He'll be known as the Prince of Peace. And even more, he'll be known as Everlasting Father. He'll be known as Mighty God. What you know about the Jews should remind us that they don't, they don't lightly put names like that to people. In, uh, in, in Hebrew, the name for God, the, uh, in your Bible it'll be capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Yahweh. They, they don't even pronounce that. When you read it, when, when I was studying Hebrew and there was a time I could read a little bit and that time has passed, but when I could read a little bit, when I would run across those letters, Y-H-W-H or Yahweh, you pronounce Adonai. They pronounce a different word. They won't even pronounce that name. So you run across it and you'll pronounce a different name. It's so holy that they won't even pronounce it. And so here we have, we have a child who's going to be called Mighty God. This is something huge. This isn't just his name's going to be Chuck, right? This is something enormous. And this isn't just going to be some regular person, okay? And the language here in, in chapter 9 is so similar to the language in chapter 7. It really seems to be talking about this same person. It's this same child. And so you have a situation going on in chapter 7 where you've got this immediate threat, right? The armies are coming against us. And so you've got this immediate prophecy of, okay, you're going to be delivered from this immediate threat. And here's how the virgin is going to conceive and bear a, bear a, a son. And you're going to call his name Emmanuel. Virgin, by the way, in, in the, the Hebrew, just means a, a young woman of marriageable age. So it wouldn't have been a striking thing. Like if I were to tell you a virgin is going to conceive and bear a child, you'd be like, okay, we need to talk about birds and bees, Brennan, because you don't get it at all, right? That would shock you if I were to say that. But this word is just a young woman of marriageable age, okay? Now, we're going to maybe mention the development of this, this virgin discussion that goes on. But they, they had an immediate threat, and there was a, a, a prophecy from the Lord. He was going to deal with it, and he gave a guarantee. Look. This woman is going to bear a child, going to bear a son, and call his name Emmanuel. God is with you. Okay? So that was the immediate threat. But then as you proceed through chapter 8 and through chapter 9, you see that there becomes a bigger deliverance is needed. Yeah, you're delivered from these two little guys, but you've got this massive oppressor coming in. You need deliverance from him, and it looks even beyond that. You need deliverance from warfare. You need deliverance from evil in the world. There's always a new guy to show up from whom you need deliverance. And he says, you're going you're gonna to have a son. There's going to be this son. 
a son will be born to you and his name will be called Prince of Peace. He's going to finish all of that. Not just from the next guy who's, who's come against you or the, the next guy, the next thug who's threatening you or whatever. But ultimately, ultimately, mighty God is his name. Everlasting Father. That's huge, okay? So you've got this, this idea developed that, yeah, you've got a, a deliverer. You've got this, you need deliverance from this current situation and from this next enormous situation. But ultimately, you need deliverance from evil. You need deliverance from oppression. And so that's what he's talking about. There's an expectation of a divine Messiah. We keep having these little problems and, and God keeps sending these little solutions and it keeps going, keeps going. In the end, we're going to need an ultimate solution to our ultimate problem. And that's the divine Messiah. Now that is a super fast summary of Isaiah 7, 8, and 9. Okay. But that's kind of the direction. That's, that's what's being developed there. And uh, when you get into the New Testament and you look at the word uh, in, in the Greek, in Matthew chapter 1, it really is virgin. It really is virgin. As, as the Jews thought about this passage, it developed into this idea that this divine Messiah is somehow connected with, with virgin birth, that this young woman who's going to conceive and bear a child, the ultimate one is going to be conceived in a virgin by, by the Holy Spirit. It's explained to us in the New Testament. And so you have this idea develop and see over time, they thought about this little situation. They thought about what went on there. They thought about the Assyrians. They thought about this problem that they had and you develop this, uh, uh, this understanding, this theology, that there, this expectation of a divine Messiah who's going to come and he's going to deliver them. And so they expected a servant, a great servant. You'll read about later in Isaiah. They expected a, a king here. They expected a, a prince of peace who's going to put an end to war, put an end to suffering, put an end to evil in the world. And this is the expectation that the Jews had, that, that God would come among them to deliver them in the form of the divine Messiah, a divine Messiah, God himself. This brings us to our second aspect of what we're calling, what I'm calling doctrine for christmas and that's the incarnation the incarnation now i think the children's bulletin if there are any children in here who have the bulletin it actually has the word incarnation and they're supposed to make a hash mark every time i say the word and so i thought about that and here you know imagine some six-year-old who can barely make out the word incarnation and he's got to put a hash mark every time i say it which is going to be a lot what does it mean what does incarnation mean well basically it means to take on flesh. Something that was not flesh takes on flesh. The doctrine of the incarnation teaches us that the divine son of God, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh and entered into humanity in the person of Jesus Christ. So when we think about incarnation, we need to think about both aspects of Jesus, his humanity and his deity. So first of all, we're going to talk about his humanity. Turn with me, if you would, to First John chapter 4. First John chapter four, Jesus humanity. Chapter four and verse two. John says, by this, you know, the spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And then he continues. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. What he's saying is that it's essential. 
It is an essential truth about Jesus that he actually became man. He didn't appear to be man. He didn't look like a man, but wasn't really there. He actually became man, took on humanity. He's saying that's essential. Why? Why is it essential for him, the son of God, to take upon humanity, to take upon flesh, to become one of us, to be a man? Well, I've got I've got four things here in uh, in my notes, four reasons why it's absolutely essential. First of all, is for representative obedience, representative obedience, meaning the son of God came to obey where we have disobeyed specifically to obey where Adam disobeyed. There's discussion in Romans about, uh, about the, the first Adam and the second Adam, the second Adam's Jesus, the first, you know, you know, the story of Adam, Adam's given a task. He fails at it, right? He sins. The second Adam comes and he succeeds. So he is our representative obedience. Paul writes in, in Romans five about how crucial it is that Jesus represents us in his obedience so that his record of obedience could be then applied to us. Because I don't have a record of obedience. You don't have a record of obedience. Quite the contrary. And so if he is actually humanity, then his record of obedience can apply to us. If he's not humanity, it cannot. That's the first reason. Representative obedience. The second reason, substitute sacrifice. There is guilt incurred because of my disobedience, because of your disobedience. There is guilt. There is there is a a punishment that's got to be paid, a price that's got to be paid for our sin. And I'll just refer you to first Peter chapter two and verse 24 says he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. And so he's able to be a substitute sacrifice. There's a penalty that has to be paid. And because he is humanity, he's able to go to the cross. He's able to bear God's judgment for us in our place. If he is not humanity, that doesn't apply to us. If he is humanity, if he is man, then his substitute sacrifice can be applied to us. Thirdly, he's our example and pattern in life. If he just came as an angel, well, we don't learn how to live from angels. Angels aren't the ones who teach us how to be faithful, how to do this, how to do that. It's not angels, right? They're not like us. They're different. And so if he had come in the the form of angel or even as a theophany and, and had appeared to us, it would be a very different situation but he came as mankind and so he's our example and pattern in life first john 4 6 just write down from where we are here in first john 4 first john 4 6 6 says whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked he is a pattern for us he is an example for us because he is actually man he's actually man the fourth point To be the one mediator between God and man, he absolutely, essentially had to be mankind. He had to be man, had to be a man. Jesus has to be man in order to represent us fully before God. He's got to be one of us or else he can't adequately represent us correctly before God. He can't completely represent us in that sense. So one of the essential truths about Jesus concerns his humanity. He is fully human. Another is his deity. At the same time, he is fully God. So we're going to talk about Jesus' deity. Flip back to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, real quick. Uh, 
Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. These are prophecies, references to Jesus, saying he's going to be Mighty God. We see that reflected in in Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. And the angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Remember I told you about capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D? That's a reference to that right here. He will be Christ the Lord. So the question is, is it absolutely necessary for us to believe that Jesus is fully God? Is it essential to believe in his deity? Well, I've got some some verses here, some comments, some observations on why it is absolutely necessary for him to be fully God. First of all, only someone who is infinite and the divine deity, God, is the only one who is infinite. Only someone who is infinite could bear the full penalty for the sins of all who would believe in him. First John 2 2 says he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world not just a small group it's an enormous group it's an enormous group that is a massive 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 amount of punishment to take a massive amount of sin to deal with and so only someone who is infinite only someone who is divine could pay the penalty for all of those completely at the same time His deity is required. Secondly, salvation is from the Lord. It is God's work. It must come from God. It must be accomplished by God. And that is the message of the entire Bible. That's the message of the entire Bible. Salvation is from the Lord. He's the one who brings it. He's the one who must accomplish it. He's the one who does it. Thirdly, only someone who is truly and fully God could be the one mediator between God and man. I've already said that he had to be man to be the mediator between god and man in order to represent us he also must be fully god in order to be a mediator between god and man both to bring us back to god which is a big task and to reveal god most fully to us to reveal who god is most fully to us requires that he be deity requires that he be a representative requires that he be god and so his deity is essential it's essential. First Timothy two five is the verse I was thinking of there. The Christmas doctrine of the incarnation is that in Bethlehem, the Son of God in his full deity took on himself full humanity. Full humanity. Turn if you would to Luke chapter two. I know you're getting some miles on your page flippers there, but Luke chapter 2. I just love this verse. Just love it. The angels are singing. All right. There was with the angel, verse 13, a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. 
Think about the logic of that a little bit. This, this always fasc, fascinates me how tight that logic is there. It starts off with glory to God in the highest. Okay, I get that. That's, that's a huge message of the Bible. That's a massive, massive thing, right? Glory to God in the highest. Think about who God is. He is the Holy One. He's high. He's lifted up. He's separate from all sin. Glory to Him, right? And these angels are singing about the birth of a baby, and somehow that's going to bring great glory to God in the highest, right? Either in the utmost or in the highest heaven, either one. Great, great glory to God, okay? Glory to God. Think about what that requires. Holiness, purity, righteousness, all those things that bring the greatest glory to God, okay? So hold that intention and then look down at the second part. Glory to God in the highest, first part, second part, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. If we think about God's glory and God's holiness, if he were to let it expand and influence us and come in contact with the sin in this world, what would be the result? Would it be peace on earth? No, it wouldn't. It would be destruction. We'd be wiped out. We'd be wiped out because his holiness cannot bear sin in its presence. He is separate from sin. And so if he were to unleash it and just let it go, it would not mean peace on earth. It would mean destruction for you and destruction for me, destruction for this world. But this verse says glory to God in the highest. So the expanding that glory all the way out, going all the way out. And at the same time on earth, peace among those with whom he's pleased. So somehow God has figured a way for his holiness, for his glory to expand infinitely all the way. And for us, sinful man, fallen man in our condition, somehow to have peace at the same time. This is the, this is the beauty. This is what is so incredible to me about Christmas time. And I love that it's here in this verse, verse 14 in Luke chapter 2. I just love that those two things are put there because there is no way in order for God's glory to expand to the infinite and for us sinful fallen man to have peace at the same time unless Christmas happens. This is what's so powerful about Christmas. He solves that problem so that we can have peace and God gets ultimate glory at the same time. That's powerful. That's, that's magical to me. It's incredible how he does that. And it's all wrapped up in Bethlehem. I just love this. I just love the gospel in Christmas. That's what we're talking about here is the gospel in Christmas. We know we're sinners. I know I'm a sinner. That means I'm separated from God. I read earlier that all have sinned and the wages of sin is death. Bad news. Bad news. And so we're separate. Mankind, fallen man is separate from God. And we're in a, we're in a state where we continue to exist only because God has not yet let all of his glory expand to the utmost. If he were to do that, we would be destroyed. He, he, he lets us exist. He restrains it. He restrains it. He restrains it until he sends his son, his son who is fully God and f- becomes fully man so that he can be a mediator between us and him. He takes on himself the punishment that I deserve and that you deserve upon himself. And God judges that on him. And what's the result for those who trust in him, for those who believe in him? As it says here, 
uh, with those among whom or uh, with whom God is pleased. What's the result for them? Peace. Peace. His wrath has been appeased. His wrath has finally been appeased and he can let his glory expand out to the utmost. And us have peace at the same time. That's the gospel in Christmas. That's why we celebrate. That's why we give gifts. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's amazing. If you don't read any other verse with your family on Christmas morning before you open presents, read this verse and think about and talk about this verse that we can have peace with God and it's a result of what he has done in sending Christ, fully God, fully man. Look at the application. First of all, for those who have never trusted Christ, the application is trust in him. This is the only way for peace with God. This is the only way for you to have peace. This is the only way for you to be reconciled and made right with him is to trust in him. There's no other out. There's no other option. There's no other way to go. Trust in him. Just Put your faith that the penalty that he paid, just trust that he paid that for you. Jesus, take my sins on yourself that they could be paid for before God. And he'll do that. He'll do that. And this Christmas, you can have peace. You can actually have peace. Peace with God. Another point of application. For all of us, the application is to think rightly about what we're celebrating at Christmas time the better we understand why we needed the incarnation to happen, the better we comprehend the mercy of God in sending his son, the more praise and glory we are able to give God for his incredible work on our behalf. The more we understand this, the more we think about this, the more we ponder this, the better we grasp it, the better Christmas becomes and the more glory God gets out of Christmas. Finally, as a point of application, Isaiah 7:14. this boy, Emmanuel, was going to be born, and his name means God with us. And we said that it pointed to the birth of Jesus. But I want to tell you that God is still with us. He's still with us. Matthew began his gospel by quoting from Isaiah 7:14, right? That the virgin had conceived and born a son, Emmanuel, which means God with us. It's an historical fact. It happened in the past, right? Now think about how Matthew ends his gospel. Think of the Great Commission. How does the Great Commission end? I am with you always, even to the end of the age, says Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. He is still, still with us. God being with us isn't just isolated to the person of Jesus walking around on the earth. He tells us in some of his final words before his ascension that he, God, will continue to be with us always, even to the end of the age. And that truth should change the way we think about the Christian life. God is with us. We've not been left on our own with nothing more than some some encouragement, some instructions, and a pat on the back and a good luck. He is with us always. Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, continues to be with us through every trial or temptation or hardship or loss or difficulty that we face. 
So lean on him. He's there. Look to him. He's there. Trust in him. He's there. I want to close with uh, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you sent Emmanuel. I thank you that you made it possible for you to be glorified to the utmost and for us to have peace and not be utterly destroyed. That you sent Jesus. I thank you for this. I thank you for Christmas time where we get to celebrate it, we get to remember it. I pray, Lord, that, that we would remember it, that this Christmas time we would be thinking about glory to God and, and, and peace on earth and Glory to God and peace on earth, and that's incredible, and it requires the incarnation. It requires the divine Son of God to become a man to pay that penalty for us. What a great gospel message Christmas is. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this morning. I thank you that we have the freedom to join together and do this. I thank you that your Holy Spirit is alive and he uses your word lord help us to be changed moved by what you've said to us today help us to be affected by your word given this morning pray this in jesus name amen